So Lisa, last week we talked about race um, and quite uh, literally and figuratively, we talked about race and we talked about talking about race, um, how to, how to have these discussions. I just still don't understand why so many people avoid the discussions, but based on this great awakening that has been coined over the last year, I don't think these discussions are going to let up. I think they're going to continue and intensify. And we have a lot of folks out there who may not feel comfortable engaging in these types of discussions. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, before I respond to your comment, I just want to let our listeners know I'm in a spare bedroom because I'm having a some rooms painted, it's a bit echoey. So I apologize if the sound quality isn't fantastic this week. But I think when you say, Shauna, so many people, I mean, we're really talking about white folks, right? That mm-hmm. are avoiding mm-hmm. um, talking about race. I mean, in particular, white men, because they've never been forced to, you know, I was never forced to growing up, I mean, protection mm. of our own identity. And I think it's a skill that we are not taught. Um, or, you know, like we mentioned last week, you know, like even saying the word black or African-American, you know, folks or white folks are so scared that that is even problematic. And so they whisper it as your student did to you. So I think the how, right. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Or at least, you know, how do you begin? I think would be a good topic for this week. Absolutely. So I I think we can come up with at least a, a few tips for people who want to engage in these conversations, but they're not quite sure how let's, let's dive in. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, what I find often, even as someone who identifies as Black, someone who has been doing DEI work in this space for a very long time is that we often aren't as intentional as we should be when it comes to engaging on the topic of race and what language we use when we're engaging on the topic of race, you know? And so, you know, for me, I'm always like wading through this, you know, overwhelming list of words that may fit, may not fit. What does someone really mean by this? You know, going back to my uh, my student in my class that still whispered, do I say Black or African-American? I, I think that there's a lot of language out there to figure out and people sometimes disengage because they're afraid of getting it wrong. And we're all going to get it wrong often. <laughs> and so, you know, wading through this language, it's it's a lot. It is a lot. So I could see how anybody could be uh, overwhelmed mm-hmm. or feel overwhelmed about engaging, especially for the first few times. Yeah. And so they just say nothing rather than say anything. I've definitely seen that mm-hmm. in comments about, you know, in the work that people don't want to engage because they're scared they will say something wrong. People, again, probably being white people, um, you know, and I think that um, we've done as a society, you know, in terms of our education, a pretty awful job in creating an awareness or critical consumption of language. And I think then the rise of political correctness, which I think was co-opted mm. um, and has now mm-hmm. is now a slur in some cases, right? But really, I mean, I think that the, the root of political correctness is really uh, respect and recognizing mm. the dignity and humanity of everyone. But that, 
you know, core message, I think has been completely lost. And now you'll often mm. hear folks saying, oh, you're so politically correct or you're overreacting, right? I mean, gaslighting, mm-hmm. that's a huge issue when we talk about language, but mm-hmm. I, it's understandable to me why there would be trepidation coming into a conversation about race from a white person's perspective. But if you don't engage in the conversation, if you don't at least try, you're never going to get anywhere, right? So, right. I mean, right. I think, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, we're both a fan of, you know, she did a recent podcast because her 1619 Project book came out and she was mm-hmm. talking about the way that American history, U.S. history has been romanticized and things like plantation, you know, which um, are the locations of where enslaved people were um, worked 24 hours a day, brutally um, raped mm-hmm. and murdered and abused in other ways. And so the mm-hmm. term plantation really glosses over the fact that they're labor camps, right? That's really what they were. That's right. That's right. Um, and mm-hmm. I had not, it makes absolute sense to me, but that framing I had not heard before. But when you think about um, what went on there, you know, you don't have to read very much to know Um you know, so I think that's that right. she was arguing that we need to avoid euphemisms. And I would say that that's certainly true. If you're going to engage in a conversation about race, say what, what it is, like, say what you mean, right? Don't yes. kind of tiptoe around yes. it. Because I think that, yes. that prevents us from getting to the heart of the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I loved how Nicole Hannah-Jones in that particular interview that we listened to, she talked about, uh, you know, let's not make these plantations versus labor camps, let's not make it seem as if they were gone with the wind. You know, we, the, the over romanticizing and, you know, we can see that in American culture quite a bit when it comes to, for example, romanticizing what really happened on this particular land. Much of this land obviously was, um, was native land, which then was turned into labor camps, which then, I mean, on and on and on the tragedies that happened on this land, but it's, romanticized. And, you know, I appreciated her language about the romanticizing gone with the wind perspective um, of labor camps for Black individuals who were enslaved because you, the further and further we get away from the history um, of the actual experience, it makes it seem so light and so lovely. And it's a movie. Uh-huh. And there's uh, there were lots of pleasantries when really there was pretty much almost nothing that was pleasant about those experiences. And so, you know, how do we make sure we don't carry that romanticizing perspective into what we talk about today? That That is huge. Let's not romanticize yeah. it. I mean, Monticello had the, a big conversation and issue around that when it came to, are we talking about servants of Thomas Jefferson or are we talking about enslaved people? And that's when they hired a director of diversity and inclusion and history uh, there at Monticello to tell the non-romanticized, accurate version of what happened there. And I think, you know, we have to do better when it comes to being intentional about choosing our language, um, because we're, I, I don't I catch myself often not choosing my language intentionally as intentionally as I should. Um, which then creates confusion, which then over romanticizes. And then you're right. We never get to the real issues. Mm, and I'm just thinking, you know, this episode's going to drop a little after Thanksgiving, you know, and the romanticization of thanks, the Thanksgiving story in the United States context. I mean, whenever white people are involved, I think language and history is romanticized, right? And part of the furor over mm-hmm. the 1619 project has been that it t- 
tells it like it is and it kind of like, explodes that romanticized right. um, narrative that has been taught for generations related to the beginning of the United States. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that's really uncomfortable for a lot of white people, but history is history. I mean, like it is what it is, right? Like, I don't know that you can negotiate your way out of that, but when, mm. um, you know, African-American uh, folks or uh, people of color generally, you know, are protesting in the streets, then it's a race riot, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have white people who are protesting something, then it's, you know, stop the steal, we're saving democracy or something, you know, right. like the way right. that right. we um, right. demonize um, mm. anything that is related to people of color and we valorize anything that is related to white people. So I think that speaks to that romanticization Right. Uh, and so right. you, I think you have to go into these conversations about race with an mm. awareness that you've been socialized in a, in a culture that is very euphemistic when we are talking about racism and in particular the history of uh, African, African-American <clears throat> and Black mm. people in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think yeah, starting at a place of being intentional about language and avoiding those euphemisms is key. And you're you're hitting onto something else, though, Lisa, in regards to how the oppressor is or is not named, even as we talk through euphemisms. Like we don't do that. <laughs> we don't want to mm-hmm. uh, talk about whether it's an individual who is oppressive a group who is oppressive or a system that is oppressive. We don't want to name it. And so instead, this is when we get into, um, you know, language around minority, minoritized, et cetera. That's where things are very frustrating to me (laughs) as an individual, because one of the things that I heard, this was a while ago where um, it was looking specifically at quote unquote, underprivileged students, college students in particular. And the white woman who was naming this, I was so proud. Uh, the white woman who was naming this was saying, yes, we always mention underprivileged students, but we never name overprivileged students in, in that conversation. And so it's kind of like, oh, well, if you're privileged or overprivileged, that should be the norm. And let's, mm-hmm. once again, target underprivileged people center them in ways that are abusive and harmful rather than centering where the challenge is. The challenge is there are some people who are overprivileged at the cost of those who are underprivileged. How do we correct the language to accurately reflect that? So, and, and people don't want to correct the language because that requires you having to place blame on an individual or a group and nobody wants to blame who's actually at fault here. Um, So naming the oppressor is really key or else we're still skirting the issue we're never really talking about the real issue yeah so I think doing that labor in the conversation that you're having um, about racism and racism is really really important I mean and it's also you know this uh, critique applies to gender it applies to sexual orientation that folks who experience the oppression are the ones who are named but in in relation to this unnamed entity right you know straight male able-bodied or whatever. Right. And, um, right. Right. I think, yeah, we, we are just very good <laughs> at skirting issues, which is, you know, goes back to our conversation last week about why it's so hard to talk about race. And so you just have to kind of mm-hmm. like recognize that. And when you f- catch yourself doing it, stop doing it, I think. 
yeah, yeah. It, it feels like a game of uh, that that my sons do all the time where, you know, if someone spills something on the floor or something's messed up in the house, no one wants to blame each other. So when I ask who did it, nobody always did it. You know, nobody always did it. And I feel like it's that game of nobody. We don't want to name anybody because that puts pressure on the accountability of mm-hmm. that individual to help clean up the mess. Um, and so right. n- nobody gets named, nobody. And it's just frustrating uh, because the harm is there. The harm is there. The pain is there. The the impact is there. And that can't be ignored. But ironically, we always seem to be re- really good at ignoring who made the mess. Uh, it's It's problematic. It's problematic. Yeah. And I I think that makes me think of journalism, right. And the way that the passive voice is used, you know, and an actor, the actor causing the harm is not named. Um, And then that makes me think of this kind of like ridiculous, um, very powerful and historical um, thread in journalism around both sidesism, right. And to be seen as you have to present mm-hmm. both sides, but really there, there isn't both sides. Like I'm thinking of Charlottesville, right. In Virginia, the, the, um, unite the right rally and the, um, subsequent murder of Heather, um, I'm forgetting her last name, but, um, you know, there's not really two sides there, you know? And so as a journalist, you can write mm-hmm. a piece about it without having to present, you know, in the same depth and weight the quote-unquote other side um and I think we do that in conversations about race particularly white people I think men do it in conversations about sexism too well what about right like I've heard tons of times in yes, conversations yes, about yes. sexism and sexual violence in particular well you know what about women who wear really short skirts you know or dress a certain way or what about women who take advantage um of men and let men pay for dinner or something you know like it's a very surfacey argument but this whole what about well what about um Mm -hmm. you know I think that that again it sidesteps the issue and it's a product of defense um but I'm sure you've got examples you've got examples of when someone has been like well what about blankety blank and that takes us away from the issue absolutely I mean yeah Absolutely. It, it's the most frustrating thing to me ever, especially when we go into what, what I've called in the podcast before the oppression Olympics, you know, when we talk about, well, you know, this is what's going on with African-Americans. Well, what about LGBT folks? Well, what about women? Well, what about, what about, and that to me can be the most frustrating thing when it comes to working with, or talking about a specific topic, talking about one topic does not mean that you don't care about a litany of other topics. It just simply means we're focusing on this one right now. I deeply care about all of those groups, but if I happen to be talking about (laughs) African-Americans right now, that does not negate my passion about the other areas. And so I think it's very much like, for those of you that uh, follow um, American football, it's very much like, um, you know, that runner that kind of runs the interference. It's called the man in motion, where literally they're moving about to be a distraction from the play that's actually going on. That's what's happening when people do those what about isms. It's it's trying to bait you into diverging from your original points. And originally it used to be all the time. And now uh, maybe it's a result of uh, going through the <laughs> the doctoral dissertation process. I did not do research on that topic, so therefore I'm focusing on this one. Th- same thing happens when it comes to these sideisms. It's like, 
well, what about, yeah, well, what about it? That's a topic for another day at another time. I'm talking about this right now. And you're right. It's a great defense mechanism that um, tries to catch people off guard and get them ruffled in ways that won't allow them to move the conversation forward. Frustrating. And it Mm -hmm. happens so Mm -hmm. often, so often. Yeah. And it often sets up kind of a false dichotomy, right? Um, Like a, you know, tries to present it as apples to apples when it's really like apples to pineapples or something, you know? And um, I would say if you're engaging in a conversation about racism and racism and you find yourself, the words are sitting in your throat and they're starting to bubble up around them. Well, what about black on black crime, which I've heard a thousand times, right? Well, what about ABC? Um, you know, ask yourself why you're raising that question, because my Mm -hmm. guess is it's probably not curiosity. It might be curiosity, but curiosity, not in a really um, transformational sense. It's really probably more of an avoidance technique. Yes, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Well, you know, in that, you know, part of me wants to think that that's also a outgrowth of trying to detach from the real issue. You know, it's like, let's, you're right. Instead of talking about the issue that was brought up, it is a, let's run an interference on the real issue. So I don't have to talk about that. It's like a a defunct way of trying to change the subject. And once you run into someone who is really strong in DEI conversation, they won't fall for it. And that means that you have to get very comfortable with a bit more of a laser focus rather than bringing up topics that are meant to divert rather than to add to the conversation. Cause it ain't add at all. It's <laughs> all it's doing is really creating a headache um, for people who are trying to advance the, the work. So I, I think that's problematic. Um, but now tell me this though, Lisa, because I, I wonder how many people, because I do my best not to, uh, use this language very often because I don't feel like I need to. I feel like it uh, throws more fuel on the fire. But um, when people are are defensive and saying, I'm not racist, I think this is really interesting because every time I've heard the language of I'm not racist, it was never in response to someone calling them out as racist. It was always in response to right. reconsider your point of view or maybe there's some information that you don't have. And then that magically jumps, you know, leaps over to a, I'm not racist defense mechanism. And I'm like, nobody even called you a racist. Now let's be very clear. If I think you are, I will say so. However, that wasn't what was said. So are you serious? I mean, I I just really think that defensiveness is like a common thread throughout most of the conversation we have around Mm -hmm. race. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak for every white person, but I think why I would jump there, um, even if you didn't say it, is that as a white person, I have been implicitly taught, probably never explicitly taught that, you Mm -hmm. know, like whispering, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anything related to do with race, any subject connected to race um, and in a in a in a way that highlights disparate experiences is. a hot potato. And if that gets brought up in any way connected to me, then what you're really saying is that I'm racist, right? Like my capacity to have a critically conscious um, and strategic conversation about the ways in which whiteness operates. And I benefit from that um, 
Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. like those tools were not given at all to white right. people. To your point that you've made this point several times, right? That as a person of color, you've grown up having those conversations about race since, you know, you were three months old, yeah. right? And it's such yeah. an ever-present experience in your life. And because white is rendered invisible by our discussions mm. of race, because we're not naming the oppressor, oppressor like you mentioned before, mm. then those, those tools don't exist. So that leap, that massive leap from a comment to I'm not racist, why are you saying that I'm racist? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is I think it's it's a defense, obviously, but it's also this inability to understand and engage with the weeds and the nuance, right? And I absolutely that lack of critical consciousness um, mm-hmm. that you have to learn how to do that. You know, you yeah. have to get taught how to do that. I think absolutely, absolutely. Now, when as you were talking, Lisa, you just reminded me of um, Untamed, the book by Glennon Doyle. Um, Glennon Doyle is also an alum of JMU, yay. Um, But she has an entire um, kind of a little chapter in her book that specifically is called Racist. And you just reminded me of it. I had a little post-it here on the page. And she mentions, in America, there are not two kinds of people, racist and non-racist. There are three kinds of people. Those poisoned by racism and actively choosing to spread it. Those poisoned by racism and actively trying to detox and those poisoned by racism who deny its very existence inside them. And then she keeps on going in her chapter. And at the end of it, she mentioned, there's something worse than privately hiding your racism to stay liked, to stay safe, liked, and comfortable while others suffer and die. There are worse things than being criticized, like being a coward. She names that. Um, and so I love that particular mm-hmm. section, and I've used it a lot when facilitating um, difficult dialogues with white individuals and groups and leadership, because I do think, similar to what Glennon Doyle says, I do think that based on many of my experiences with white individuals, there's almost nothing worse that you could be labeled than being a racist. Like you could be sexist, you could be, uh, and and I hate to play those oppression Olympics because I don't like that. Um, But I don't think there's one human being on the planet who would say, yes, I'm, I am okay with being a racist because I believe that there is a hierarchy when it comes to race. They do not want the label of racist and therefore you're willing to do anything in your power to avoid that label. And so sometimes that means hiding behind language or throwing Mm -hmm. ideas out there that may be irrelevant in order to kind of squirm out of racist characteristics and tendencies. I I think it's clear. And so, you know, that's where we, I think this podcast has made a good point of uh, challenging everyone under the sound of our voices to be brave and to, and to work against that, that issue of, um, uh, courage what how much courage do you currently have and how can you practice that courage um so mm-hmm. yeah I, I think that racism uh label is just frightening it, it's frightening yeah. I think I agree right because racism has been categorized um defined you know projected as the KKK as pretty extreme Mm. manifestations of racial violence. And so everyone wants to separate themselves from that. It's not been defined as, you know, the, you know, white person getting a job over a person of color or the promotion or the extra pay or the um, ways in which you're followed around a store, right? Like it's not generally defined that way. And so it feels like this big, ugly Mm -hmm. stamp 
So part mm-hmm. of being able to engage in these conversations is I think you do have to accept that you've grown up in a system that is itself racist because there's just no way, like, you know, factually, mm-hmm. logically, the United States has, um, you know, grew out of the oppression and um, eradication of indigenous people, of Native Americans, and, you know, of the slave trade, of enslaving Africans. And then, you know, systematically um, removing their rights and access to, you know, participatory democracy. So, and that isn't that long ago. And I think we forget that. We forget that. So um, I think part of being able to have these conversations is you have to really, really do the work to depersonalize it. Yes, you may articulate a position that is a manifestation of that history, context and system, but um, it's, you know, pointing that out doesn't make you a shitty person, right? (laughs) Right, If you you choose not to change, then maybe it does. But if once Mm -hmm. made aware, you don't then take the steps to engage in a, you know, critical conversation and in self-reflection, then I think, Mm -hmm. um, Mm. you know, there's there's an issue there. But it's really hard to depersonalize it, particularly for white people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. and then I think this really actually connects to the next point we wanted to make, which is about tone. Right. When you're engaging in a conversation oh. with someone or a group of people where, as it as it relates to race, there's often a lot of tone policing that happens. Yes, um, yes, and, yes. You know, messages being written um, mm-hmm. without, mm-hmm. Uh, without it being said. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and we need to think about this from lots of different angles, too, even around, you know, how are you reading tone, whether it's tone in a conversation, tone in an email, tone in a text. There's so many different ways to engage with people that, yeah, this can be almost frightening for people because they may be reading tone into what they're hearing, um, recognizing some of your assumptions in regards to tone. And I I have kind of come to my own personal little philosophy on tone uh, without tone policing folks. I think tone is heard and received in direct proportion to someone's level of defensiveness and fragility when it comes to these conversations. Usually there's a lot of tone policing when it comes to people of color, many of which are justifiably angry, upset, frustrated, or even if they're not angry, upset, and frustrated, there is a tone that is assumed from a person when there is no tone. I've even, Lisa, to to this point around tone, I have even heard and have experienced situations where me as a black person and other black women have been sitting in meetings where there were conversations about race, doing nothing but sitting there and breathing. And there was an assumption that we were angry about the conversation, literally had not made a statement, had not weighed in on any subject, but there was a preconceived understanding that oh, because Shauna's not smiling, she must be angry. Or because Shauna has not nodded her head, then she must not be okay. When in fact, I'm literally sitting there breathing and practicing my deep listening skills. And it's the assumption that Shauna, who exists as a Black woman, is angry about something. So just being aware of how that happens, even even when words aren't even exchanged, it still happens. I I don't know if you've seen that happen around you, Lisa, but I know I've experienced it as well as others. 
oh yeah, I mean, certainly it's different for me as a white person, but I've had that experience around womanhood, right? Like if I'm not smiling, therefore I must be pissed off, right? Because apparently all women have to smile all of the time. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Unless know, it's I, a toothpaste commercial, no, right. we don't have to yes. smile all the time. Thank you very much. I, I think that it's an important point that when you're in these conversations and you start to feel uncomfortable based on an assessment of someone else's tone, that you really question is that my bias about this person's mm. identity is kind of filtering into the way that I'm receiving the information? Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that you can be given difficult information softly or loudly. And in both cases, like your example, right? If you are applying a stereotype to that person, you're going to take it in a negative way. And so um, mm-hmm. I think you just have to really be in touch with yourself around why am I, why am I thinking this, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know whether this would be appropriate actually Shauna, but, you know, maybe not in the context that you describe But if you're having a conversation with a girlfriend, you know, just chatting about this stuff and it's getting intense, I think it's really important to check in with that person, you know, like, yes, and make yes, sure yes, that you're yes, not yes. misinterpreting, right? Like recognizing, mm-hmm. you know, I've grown up in a society that sends certain messages to me about the demeanor of black women and I'm hearing your passion and I'm trying to reflect on. And so I want to check in with you and see where, you know, I, that sort of thing um, rather right. than just mm-hmm. rolling forward with an assumption and then getting defensive because you think this person is angry at you. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, we, as uh, people of color, um, I, it was so funny that I saw this on LinkedIn where someone mentioned um, in a meme that people of color are tired of the check in with you afterwards approach to things, meaning that, yes, definitely check in with people. But oftentimes, Lisa, those check ins were um, in order to save face, meaning that the white person in the right. meeting yeah. didn't want to be vulnerable um, or did not want to uh, call out a colleague and therefore chose to, quote unquote, support you after the fact in a hallway meeting or in an after the fact email. And so I so appreciate your point on checking in on someone's well-being after the fact individually. But when it comes to these tough conversations, not letting the person of color always have to hang out on their own or always have to be the one that's initiating the conversation. How can you be of support of that individual in real time during these conversations around race and the both and and checking in with them later Mm -hmm. to see how they're feeling Mm -hmm. about things. So I think it's a both and situation. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great point. Like there's just always questioning your assumptions, which I think takes us to the need. You have to be authentic. You have to be honest. Oh, yes. Yes deep self-reflection and roll into these Mm -hmm. conversations with humility because you do not know what you do not know. Right. That's right. That's right. um, Mm -hmm. That, you know, obviously questions are going to come up. Of course they are, because if you're learning you something, right. Um, But if you, you need to engage um, in those conversations from a place of um, openness and kindness and, you know, essentially you've got to probably throw out a whole lot of shit that you thought you knew that you don't actually know. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. That you don't actually know. You're not nuanced about you made a lot of assumptions in thinking that this was true or Lisa, a true uh, stereotype, if you will, because you had that one experience with that one person that identified that way, then that applies to everyone. And that just ain't true. (laughs) The majority of the time, it's not true. So 
you know, coming in with that uh, cultural humility is key um, because you might think that, you know, you have a lot of knowledge and really you're like, oh, there's a whole wing of information I had no clue about. So that piece is crucial. And, and people, you know, obviously feel uncomfortable with that and it will take practice over time. But then I, I also say, you know, let's lean into the fear and the vulnerability of it because, you know, the fear is natural. I think, you know, anytime you're doing something new, I think it, it brings a little bit of trepidation there. Um, so acknowledging the fear, but yet not making it all about you because your fear is actually about another group, especially if you identify as a white person, a male individual or someone in a majority group, your fear is actually about the power that you may lose simply by even having this conversation right now. And I think we need to name that, that power shift or power dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, also fundamentally this belief that the power is yours to begin with, right. That this is somehow your right to have this elevated position. Um, and that by creating mm -hmm. more equity or understanding around race with your, you know, you know, club members, people, you coach, right. folks right. you work with is going to somehow like, um, dramatically mm -hmm. like shift your position. I mean, it's going to dramatically shift your position in the sense that you are going to have more awareness and um, more ability to engage effectively and, right. you know, precipitate change, but it's not like, you know, you're not going, going to be put in a freaking jail cell, you know, like, you know, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's irrational. And that's true. I mean, most fear is irrational, right? Most fear is right. irrational. And I think we right. let it control us and then we perseverate on it. And then we cease again, to focus mm. on the issue, right? There's another mm -hmm. diversion, another diversion. Exactly, exactly. Well, and you know, it's a fine line as, as my uh, open water swim coach says all the time, it's a big difference between being afraid of the water and respecting the water. That's two different things. I think we should bring in that respect of the conversation, but not be afraid of it because this is, it's, it's almost like, um, I, I would imagine it's similar to learning a language that you have not used in the past. And now because of much of the awakening that's going on, especially in the US, but also elsewhere, there's an awakening where now people are saying, no, we want to use this as a common language. We want to have a common awareness of these issues. And so of course, it's gonna be some trepidation. When little kids learn new languages, they're not afraid to mess up. But when we as adults learn new things, it's like, I'm not gonna do it unless I'm perfect with it. That's just not, the reality <laughs> of doing this work and doing it well it's it's just not the reality of it yeah that's a good psychology piece there right like our preoccupation as adults to be getting everything right and if we mm -hmm. are concerned that we're not going to get something right or we're not going to be um good then we just mm -hmm. don't engage at all because that's better <laughs> But um, that's right. I've definitely, that's right. I've definitely been there for sure. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked about this before that it's not a person of color's job, a woman's job, a disabled person's job to educate you. Right. And so right. one right. of the ways to engage effectively in these conversations about race that are difficult and painful, but very, very important is mm -hmm. read. You know, there's tons of blogs out on the yes. internet. There's tons of books that you can read. You can follow leaders mm -hmm. on social media. There's so much available to you so that you can educate yourself. Mm -hmm. And does that mean you should never ask your friend a question? No, but you know, right, you, right, you, right. you have to take on the, the labor of doing 95% of the work, right? So that you can come right. into these conversations, sure, scared maybe, but you know, informed. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, start the work on your own, let it uh, snowball. So um, I'm the type of person who loves to ask the educated questions, <laughs> meaning I don't need to know everything, but I need to know enough to ask an intelligent question <laughs> about things. And so I think that's kind of uh, what we're encouraging you all to do is to, you know, ob- obviously continue listening to this podcast, uh, continue to follow up with all the resources that we put in the show notes and continue to help the information kind of roll down to you. So you're always um, exposing yourself to the information because it's hard to keep up, but it's doable. Um, It's not uh, okay to stay in what Lisa, I remember when we first started recording these podcasts, you mentioned willful ignorance. It's not okay to stay in willful ignorance. There is so much information out there. If you can, uh, if you can hit two buttons to log on to Amazon to order something, you can hit two buttons to do a query on what Juneteenth really means or the 1619 project or whatever you want to research on these topics. So do your part, do your part when it comes to this work. All right, let's move on to our segment. Yes, let's move on to hell no, hell yeah. I think we got two good ones this time, Lisa. Hell yeah. Hell no. I have to acknowledge one of my buddies from my Fast Chicks uh, Tri Club who sent me an inbox message last week in regards to Band-Aids, not specifically Band-Aids, the product, but more so bandages and some of the branding and the pricing that goes along with this. Um, Months ago, I discovered a Band-Aid called True Colors. And I thought it was wonderful because finally, especially for people of color, we finally had bandages that would actually match, quote unquote, neutral when it comes to uh, the melanin in our skin. So hallelujah, we have that. That's a good thing. However, my teammate noticed that when it comes to a comparison between the pricing of Band-Aid products that are supposedly neutral, and we're going to say white neutral because they match white flesh tones. Yeah, apparently Band-Aids are cheaper when they're not, quote unquote, our tone or true colors. So once again, here we go with a black and brown tax when it comes to trying to match my own skin tone with bandages that I have to pay a bit more. She sent a photo of the regular Band-Aid product for $2.99, 30 count $2.99 in her local store. But when she took a picture of Band-Aids in our tone, which is for a, a, a laundry list of different skin tones, they were $3.29. So you mean to tell me I have to pay an extra 30 cents because I have more melanin than Lisa and a lot of my other buddies do. I call BS on that, Lisa. I call B. Oh, I yeah. know you call BS on it too, but that's BS right there. That is just like flat out fucked up. I mean, it's so right, 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 like, right. What the heck, you know? I mean, ridiculous. And, and that these band aids have only materialized in the last what few years? I mean, I remember learning about think learning about band aids and the lack of diversity in skin tones back in like two thousand four. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the same with right. like foundation, right? Like new exactly. and foundations exactly. and such. I actually went into the local um, pharmacy and actually took a look to see if I could find those band-aids. They didn't have them. 
um, which is a problem in and of itself, right? And then I also looked at the foundation right. and tried to see if there was any discrepancy in color as the foundation got darker, like a darker yes. brown. And it, yes. wasn't, it wasn't, I couldn't find anything there. Um, mm-hmm. But it wouldn't mm-hmm. have surprised me to see that, to see that, exactly. you know? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm like yeah. ridiculous. Y'all have got to be kidding me. So anyway, once again, another mm-hmm. black and brown tax when it comes yep. to trying to match our own skin color. Shame on you, Band-Aid. Shame on you. Definitely shame on you. So to counter that, we have this week a hell yeah. So it came to our attention that Ann Arbor in Michigan is the first U.S. city to mandate the provision of free menstrual products in public restrooms. So no other city has done this. And it was reported on CNN. And so it's a pretty big deal that you can go into any uh, public restaurant in Ann Arbor, not the whole of Michigan, just Ann Arbor, and you will have a steady supply of free menstrual products. So none of that, like, do you have any change to put in the machine and the stuff is awful, you know, that ridiculousness. So I thought that was pretty amazing. That is incredible. And especially after we just had that really great session on period poverty at Outspoken, I just thought that was incredible. Um, I hope and keep my fingers crossed that this uh, continues to spread across the country. Um, Lisa, I made a note to myself when I'm kind of hanging out and doing nothing over the holidays to uh, snoop around and see how maybe we as Unfazed can support those efforts around the country. There's got to be some other stuff going on in other cities, but I think that's just incredible. And we're so proud of Ann Arbor for doing the right thing. Uh, we realize how um, how expensive those products can be. Um, I don't know about you all, but my products are extremely expensive. We can talk more about that later, but uh, kudos to Ann Arbor for doing the right thing. And we hope that you become a model for the rest of the country. Definitely a hell yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap for this week. As usual, send us your emails or voice messages. If you have anything to share, if you have hell nas or hell yes, we would love to hear from you. Awesome. Women have unique physiology and deserve a training plan that honors this. Sign up for the first of its kind women specific online group training program and join a movement of empowered women ready to harness the power of their physiology. Introducing Vicey Triathlon Coaching, led by expert coaches Miranda Bush and Jamila Gale Agins. For just $99 a month, you'll get a monthly women-specific training plan, Zoom rides, AMA sessions, membership to the Feisty team, and more. You'll also get a female athlete guide that provides you with the power to better understand your body and how to get the most from your training. Launching December 1st, 2021 with limited spots available. Go to FeistyTriathlon.com and click the link for coaching so you can be the first to know when it opens and receive a special price for the first four months. That's FeistyTriathlon.com. The link will also be in the show notes of this episode. The future of women's triathlon training is here. The Unfazed Podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data. They provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community.
To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feisty triathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.